You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. Well, good morning, church family and others that may be listening to this. Happy Resurrection Sunday. I know this Easter looks a little bit different than normal, and it may even feel a little disappointing that we can't do what we normally do this Easter. I'm thankful that the power of the cross is not based on any program we put on, but the power of the cross is based completely on what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. And that's what we're going to celebrate today and focus on. We'll be taking a little break from our study in the Gospel of John and instead be focusing on what Christ has accomplished for us. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 5. Today we're getting straight to the heart of sin and grace, straight to the heart of death and life, condemnation and justification. We're really jumping right into the deep end. We aren't even wading into it. Uh, Most grown-ups, when they go to a pool, probably walk down the steps into the shallow end first before going deeper. But this morning, we're doing what most kids do and instead heading straight to the diving board and jumping in the deep end. And on this Easter morning, I want us to truly understand the glory and wonder of what Jesus has done for us by first understanding the depth and despair of the situation we're in apart from Him. We want to fully understand the consequence of our sin first in order to fully appreciate the infinite worth of the free gift of God. Imagine if you're going to go buy a diamond for a piece of jewelry and you find one that you want to look at. A good jeweler is going to place that diamond on a black cloth or something with a dark background and then put it under some lights that are much brighter than normal, all in order to emphasize the beauty of the diamond. In that contrast, you get to see all the brilliance and luster of the gem. And in the same way, we can see the magnificence of salvation much clearer against the background of sin and death. And we'll do that this morning by looking at the two most influential people to have ever walked the earth. Two people that have influenced your existence and my existence more than anyone else has, and that is Jesus and Adam. So turn with me to the book of Romans, and we'll begin in chapter 5, verse 12, and we'll see why Adam actually fits into this Easter message. So in Romans five twelve, if you just glanced at verse 12, you'll see that it begins with the word, therefore. That tells us that it's connected directly to the preceding verses, Now, I know we're dropping into Romans for just one Sunday right now, but it's still helpful to know the context of this passage because therefore tells us this isn't an isolated message because it tells us it's connected. In the previous passage, Paul speaks at length about the newfound reconciliation and grace that we have through Jesus Christ. But before that, Paul spent several chapters hammering out the effects of sin and the fact that all mankind has suppressed the truth about God and exchanged the glory of God for earthly pleasures, and accumulated only wrath for themselves in return. And to go from that impenetrable darkness of those first few chapters to all of a sudden there being salvation and grace through faith, something absolutely incredible must have occurred. And so here in Romans 5, Paul takes a moment to explain how the death and resurrection of a man named Jesus could possibly overcome the state that mankind found itself in. And he does this by zooming out, in a sense, to to see the entirety of human history beginning with Adam. It's like if you go to uh, use Google Maps or another online map, you type in an address and it takes you to that location up close, even to the street level view if you want. 
But to understand where that location really is, it helps to zoom out a little bit to see the surrounding streets and maybe even the small towns or cities around it. And if you wanted to, you could zoom out completely to see where that little dot is in relation to the whole globe. And so Paul, in a way, is zooming out to give us this holistic, historical view of mankind in terms of sin and redemption, how this whole thing happened. And so read with me in verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Paul introduces the phrase with the words, just as. And so we'd expect there to be a so then at some point. Just as, so then. But we don't find one in verse 12. Paul actually breaks off mid-sentence, almost as if he realizes that there's going to be some serious questions about what he's about to say. And that's why in your Bible, there's likely a dash at the end of verse 12 and not a period. And in a sense, the next verses from 13 to 17 are really a parenthetical explanation before he comes around to finally completing his thought in verses 18 and 19. And so just humor humor me for a moment. If we combine verses 12 and 18 together, we can really get a summary of Paul's entire thought and the summary of this whole passage from the beginning. So let's do that and read it starting this way in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, then hop over to verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." So we find here that we really have a story of two men, the first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus. In a sense, you could say the whole story of redemption or of the world is really a story of two men and the consequences of both of their actions, one man's disobedience and the other man's obedience. And Paul begins by discussing the effects of the first man. How did sin enter the world? Some might assume that it came through Satan, but Satan's fall in no way affected man's status before God. Instead, as Paul asserts, sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and sin brought death with it. And not only that, but death spread to all men. And here's where we're jumping straight into the deep end, because we find that man's problem of sin is actually much worse than we usually think it is, because according to this passage, we not only die because of our sin, but We also die because of Adam's sin. Most of us would agree that when sin entered the world through Adam, it affected the entire human race. Like a virus infects a person, sin infected the human race so that we all have that inclination to sin. This is known theologically as original sin or inherited sin. That's our nature. We can see that easily enough uh, through little children. No one seems to have to teach them to sin. They They just seem to naturally know how to hit and scratch and act selfishly. We know that man is broken, but there's also a sense in which we're not only guilty of our own sin, but also guilty of Adam's sin. This is known theologically as imputed sin. We see this where Paul says in verse 19, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This means that the moment Adam sinned, God considered all of mankind to have sinned. Before the father, um, being the father of the whole human race, Adam represented all of us. And in his sin, we all became guilty 
and, and thus death reverberated throughout the entire history of mankind. Now, I know that may not seem fair on the surface, and we have a hard time understanding this, especially in our Western way of thinking. We think very individualistically for the most part. There are rare occasions when we think corporately. For example, most Americans thought very corporately after the attacks on 9-11. It wasn't just an attack on those people in those buildings and planes, but it felt as an attack on all of us as American people. And even right now in our current pandemic, we're beginning to think of ourselves more as communities and cities and a nation, but this isn't our normal way of thinking. For a Jew, on the other hand, this was much easier to understand. This concept of corporate solidarity was much stronger. And as I mentioned, Paul has in a way zoomed out from talking about individual sinning to Jews and Gentiles sinning and to finally this picture of the entire human race being corrupted and condemned in their sin from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Because the truth is, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that indeed paints a very dark picture, much darker than we normally imagine, one that looks as hopeless as it can get because we're sinners through and through. Paul then goes out of his way to explain the depth of sin's effect in verse 13, making sure that we realize that sin and death existed long before even the law of Moses did. So it wasn't the breaking of the law that only led to death. And he proves this by saying that death, which is the consequence of sin, reigned from Adam to Moses. So all those years between Adam's sin and the giving of God's law, death still reigned, even though there wasn't a particular law or rule for people to be held accountable to. Why? Because through Adam's sin, we all stood condemned. The truth of this is seen in the fact that Jesus could not be born of normal means. Otherwise, he would... Um, He would have inherited the guilt and sinful nature of Adam, but instead he had to miraculously be born of a virgin rather than directly through the line of Adam like everyone else. And then in verse 14, Paul says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now this word type is not the normal use of the word. This doesn't mean Adam was a virgin or kind, like you would say an apple is a type of fruit. But in biblical terms, a type refers to something in the Old Testament that prefigures or foreshadows something in the New Testament. And there's quite a few of these. We've already seen one in our study in the Gospel of John where Jesus referred to the bronze serpent Um, that Moses held up as being a foreshadowing of how the Son of Man would be lifted up. That's an example of a type. And Paul says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, Jesus. Adam was really the first type, and although he is a type or foreshadowing of Jesus and their history runs parallel, that does not mean that they're the same. In fact, we'll find they're quite the opposite, and that is really good news for us. And what we'll find in the rest of this passage today is really three major contrasts or differences between the two men, Adam and Christ. And through this, my prayer is that that we'll see the majesty and the glory and the greatness of our Savior Jesus Christ because everything He offers us was accomplished on the cross. And that's what we'll study for the rest of our time together this morning. So the first contrast is between Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. Adam's disobedience versus Christ's obedience. In verse 19, Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Consider for a moment 
the disobedience of Adam. And yes, I know Eve ate first, but God held the man accountable because God created him to lead and he failed in his leading. But what did Adam disobey? One rule. The one rule. God gave Adam a mission to subdue the earth and multiply. But he only gave Adam one rule, not to eat of a certain tree in the middle of the garden. Everything else was his for the taking. And God even warned him that if he ever ate of the tree, he would surely die as a result. But you know the story. The serpent twisted God's words and they fell for it and questioned God and chose to disobey. And in that moment, they assumed the position of God in their lives. Theologian Wayne Gruden points out that sin is always irrational. Sin is always irrational. I love and hate that quote at the same time. I love it because it's so simple and true, but I hate it because it makes me feel like such a fool. (laughs) Is not sin always irrational? Wasn't it irrational for Adam to think eating that fruit would give him a better life than the life that God had already given him? Wasn't it irrational to think that even for a millisecond that maybe they knew better than God? And it's the same for us, no matter what the sin is. Prideful arrogance is irrational because in reality, everything we have is a gift from God. Racism is irrational because we're all created in the image of God and all have sinned. Sexual immorality is irrational because it shows we assume we know how to use sex and pleasure better than the God who created it. Any kind of addiction is irrational because we think we need that substance or person or thing more than the life God offers. All sin is irrational when it comes down to it because it's placing ourselves on the throne of God and spitting in his face saying, we know better. So Adam disobeyed the one rule he was given and through that unleashed death and chaos and pain and suffering upon not just mankind, but according to the Bible, the entire creation. But in contrast, we have the obedience of Christ. Unlike Adam, Christ enters into the world that already has the law of Moses. Do you know how many direct commands are in the Levitical law? 613 commands. Adam had one command to obey. Christ had 613, and he lived a life of complete obedience. It's not that he never encountered temptation. He didn't live in a bubble. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he experienced every temptation that we do, yet never sinned. And more than that, he was tempted by Satan himself. I don't think anyone in here or listening to this can claim that. We have enough trouble dealing with the temptation that comes from our own sinfulness, much less being tempted directly by Satan. And yet Jesus never disobeyed. He fully and completely followed the will of God at every turn. All throughout the Gospels, we find him saying phrases like, I only do what my father sent me to do, or I only say what my father tells me to say. Jesus's mission was to carry out the will of God the Father, no matter what the cost. And how did he do it? How did he do that, live that perfect life? Well, we find in the answer in Philippians 2.6, where it says, Though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Satan aimed to take God's place, to set himself on the throne. Adam, in eating the fruit, assumed authority over his life in God's place. Every time we sin, we're saying we know better than God. Yet Jesus, who was God himself and co-equal with God, 
did not count it something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself first to the point of becoming a human like us, but didn't stop there. He humbled himself even to the point of obediently following God's will for him to die. And not just any death, but the most cruel, painful death possible, death on a cross. What humility is on display there and what love is evidenced in his obedience? What love for God the Father and love for us that he would be obedient even to the point of death for our sake. So where Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed. And then the second contrast is imputed sin versus imputed righteousness. Remember, we're in the deep end here. What did we inherit from Adam? Sin and guilt. Adam's sin was imputed to us, meaning it was passed on to us. He was our representative. Paul says in verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. According to Paul, Adam's one trespass brought us judgment and condemnation. That's the result of sin. Sin tries to promise other things though, doesn't it? No one sins because they think it'll ruin their life. We sin because we think it'll improve our life, though it's always irrational and it can't. We think that lashing out in anger and hurling insults at someone will make us feel better, at least for a minute. Or that looking at those pornographic images will give us the satisfaction that we've been missing in our life. Or to are you telling those lies or crossing those ethical or moral boundaries at work or school um, will help you gain that job or that group of friends that you really wanted. But the truth is that sin can never result in anything but condemnation. Sin results in judgment and condemnation because sin is missing the mark of God's moral law. It's open rebellion against God. And because God is perfectly holy and because He is perfectly just, He must judge sin. Just as a good judge has to judge criminal offense, so God has to judge moral offense. That's what we receive from Adam, sin. And from that sin, we receive condemnation. But the good news is that from Christ... We received righteousness and justification. As our representative, Adam gave us sin, but Christ, as our representative, gives us his righteousness. And realize the magnitude of that reality. Before salvation, God looks at us as rebellious sinners, deserving only wrath. And we're justly due that punishment for our sin. No one is neutral before God. The Bible describes us as enemies of God, and that's not a good person to be enemies with. But through salvation, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. The righteousness that Christ displayed through living that perfect life of obedience to God is now yours and mine. And so now when God looks at us, he sees only the righteousness of Christ. He no longer sees an object of wrath. We now have the peace with God through faith in Jesus and we're reconciled to him. That's incredible. And notice here that the work of the second man is always greater than the work of the first man. We gain far more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. That's how great the work of Christ is, that it could overcome the consequence of Adam's sin. And not just by a hair, but by a mile. As Paul says in verse 20, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. His grace is always greater. And let this be an encouragement to you if you're listening to this right now and you struggle with doubting your salvation. There is no one who is barely saved or partially saved. You're either 100% saved or 100%
not saved. And once you're saved, you can't become unsaved. God seals us with His Holy Spirit, and more than that, the righteousness of Christ cannot be overcome by the condemnation of sin. Christ received your punishment for your sins on the cross, and there is now no punishment left for you. You are His. And if that's you, let it be an encouragement to you that you can walk in full assurance of your faith and understand that those feelings of condemnation are only an attack from the enemy. The work of Christ is always greater than the work of Adam. And the final contrast is death versus life. Death came through Adam, but life came through Christ. Several times in this passage, we find the phrase, death reigned. Adam's sin introduced death into the world, and and it completely dominated and affected everything. It reigns in the sense that nothing can stop it. Death is king over the entire human race. 55 million people die each year. That's a staggering number. And in the book of Job, it refers to death as the king of terrors. He comes for all, the old, the young, the weak, the strong, the rich, the poor, the famous, the unknown, the good, the evil. And we're probably more aware of that reality right now in our current pandemic. But we also know that this death extended much deeper than the physical. It also entailed a spiritual death, completely dead to the things of God, destined for an eternal state of spiritual death separated from God in hell. But remember, the work of the second man is always greater than the work of the first man. Christ's obedience is greater than the disobedience of Adam, and in Christ we can have life. Christ is a provision for our sin and death. And the fact is that God has been making provisions for our sin since the beginning. In Genesis, immediately after the fall of man, in Genesis 3.21, it says, "...the Lord made garments of animal skins for the man and woman." That's the first time we know that something died because in order to have animal skins, you have to have an animal die to provide it. And God made that provision to cover them in their shame and guilt. And the rest of history from the garden on is the story of God making a provision for our sin and providing a way to be reconciled to Him. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was just a picture of how dark our sin was, that it required the shedding of blood, and it it pointed to the need for something much greater than the blood of goats and bulls. And the final, complete, death-destroying provision finally came in the man, Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate provision. And while Adam brought death, Christ brought life. As Paul says in verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is righteousness leading to eternal life. All eternity with the loving God who created you and sent his son to save you. Isn't that incredible? It would have been one thing for God just to simply justify us and spare us from his wrath. That in itself would have been a ridiculous gift of grace and mercy, just to leave us alone. But he went far beyond that. He not only justified us but giving, and giving us a clean record, but then extended his grace even further and adopted us into his family. And so we now have hope in life eternal with him, but it also means life here on earth as well. It gives us a life of purpose and peace that can only be found through salvation. We have death in Adam, but life in Christ. And now instead of death and sin reigning, we have grace and righteousness reigning. Glory to God. 
And I want to close by drawing your attention to the phrase we see five times in this passage, and it's the phrase, free gift. Paul says the free gift is not like the trespass. He calls Christ's imputed righteousness a free gift. Paul could not be any clearer that this isn't something you earn. All throughout the book of Romans, Paul consistently refers to salvation, eternal life, grace, and righteousness as free gifts. You can't earn it. If that were possible, then Christ died for nothing. God would not have had to go to such extremes to save us. But because of the guilt we had through Adam and because of the reality of our daily sin condemning us, salvation could come no other way. But when you understand the depth of our sin and the hopelessness of the condemnation that we're in, only then can we truly understand the beauty and extravagance of the grace that has been shown to us on the cross. So if you're listening to this today and you find yourself arrested by your problem with sin, which is our greatest problem, and you've run out of options on how to deal with that guilt and conviction, stop striving and run to Jesus. It's a free gift. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. The call for you today is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died on the cross for our punishment of sin and rose from the grave, defeating the power of death. And that in believing in Him as Lord and Savior, you are saved. If you've never made that decision before and you recognize your sin needs a Savior, I pray that you would make that decision today. Cast off the condemnation and death that comes through Adam and embrace and receive the free gift of life that comes through Jesus. The obedience of Christ is greater than the disobedience of Adam. The righteousness and grace of Jesus is infinitely greater than the guilt and condemnation of sin. Well, thank you for spending this time with me in God's Word today. Obviously, this isn't the Easter that we're accustomed to, and it can feel disappointing. But at the same time, consider how this might actually enhance our focus on the cross. There's no distractions. You didn't have to get all dressed up this morning and get ready for the perfect family picture with the kids all fighting. There's no special music or program. There's no extravagant Easter egg hunt, but... What we have is the glorious truth that the tomb is empty. His body isn't there because he's alive. Jesus Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave, and that is enough. So my prayer is that in this unusual Easter, we would be gripped by the power of the cross and extravagant love of God in a whole new way. Amen.